Kia ora, e tihoa, me te Welcome, friends and family, to the Candid Kiwi Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa, and I am the Candid Kiwi. Kia ora, and welcome to episode 34. This is my friend, Phil, and he has been my hairdresser for... I'd say close to 13 years, he was introduced to me by my good friend Jessica, who had been getting her hair done by him, and her daughter's hair had been done by him, and her mother's hair had been done by him, so I'm like, sure, I'll check him out, and I never left. So, if you're wondering how I have these beautiful locks of mine, then Phil is the man. Phil has gotten a new job opportunity over in Hawaii and so he is out of here so I've had to find somebody else which has been sad but you know we always have to move forward with what we need to do and Phil is moving forward with what he and his husband need to do and I'm excited for them sad for me. Phil's story is filled with a lot of interesting things Phil was and is gay his whole life, knew it, and he's going to talk a little bit about that. His family was extremely religious, and so that caused a little bit of conflict and some trauma. He has a love-hate relationship with it because he loves the way that he was brought up. He loves his family, loves the church, but also... There was a lot of hiding, a lot of figuring out who he was, shame, things of this nature. So he talks about that. Phil was homeless for a while, as well as suicidal. He's a hard worker. He learned how to thrive, even amongst all of the chaos in his life. He was bullied in high school, and it was pretty hard for him. But he's also talks about... The kindness that he was showed, as well as the love from others, reconciliation with, you like how I said that word, did I save it or no? (laughs) With his mum and dad, as well as with his family after 27 years after his mum passed. He has been through a lot and this is what makes him pretty great. He also talks about his husband and he talks about his career and we just have a good time. A lot of laughs. Phil is so great. I love him and I think you'll love him too. So come with me and let's give Phil's story a go. Phil with me. I'm super pumped to be able to have you here today, Phil. Welcome to tell us your story. I'm like so pumped about this. Thank you. I'm excited too. This should be awesome. Yeah. Welcome to my little studio. I love it. Very humble, but good sound quality. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm loving it. (laughs) Let's dive right in. You bet. You were born in San Jose as the youngest of four kids. We're the same age. You just told me you turned 46, though, in January. I turned I 46 in May. Yeah. So we're heading close to 50. 
but your husband already is in his 50s. Yes. So um, it keeps you young. It does. Whereas me, I'm older than Drew, so I always feel like... <laughs> See, I always say I'm the young, pretty one in our relationship. But I tell you what, the amount of people who come up and are like, oh, is this your younger brother? And I'm like, no, I'm the young, pretty one. I'm the young, pretty one. You're both beautiful. <laughs> so you're the youngest of four. It was your dad's second marriage. So your older brother and sister were half-siblings. And your sister just above you, you're in increments of five. So there was you, five years later was your sister, five years later was brother. your brother, and then five years later was your sister. That's yeah. pretty perfect. Yeah. <laughs> but your sister just above you passed away, unfortunately, when she was 32, taken too soon of MS. You were 27, and I'm really sorry about yeah. that. I know that must have been really tough for you and anybody who have lost anyone close to them. Why don't you dive in and tell us a little bit about your family and your sister? And Absolutely. You know, I definitely came from a family of love and Good. didn't realize growing up that I was technically classified as poor. <laughs> I just knew, and my dad had three jobs, and yet he always seemed to manage to make time for me, for my siblings, and he was there to wake us up and make us breakfast every morning. Yet, I didn't realize he had gotten back from job number one that he mm. went to at the crack of dawn mm. and then sent us off to school and then went to job number two and was home for dinner, spent time with us at dinner, we'd watch TV, we'd all go to bed, and he'd go to job number three. Mm. And I didn't realize what my parents actually sacrificed and had to do when I was growing up just to maintain four children. Mm. But... Yeah, you'd mentioned that technically it was my dad's second marriage. That still blows my mind even to this day because mm -hmm. I didn't even find out that my oldest two siblings were technically half-siblings until I was 14. I was, like, I had just, it literally was mind-blowing when they sat me down and, and let me know, yeah, they're going to meet their birth mom and I was like what do you mean birth mom aren't you their mom and my mom said I raised them since they were like what one and six mm. so they were young young really young so they're pretty much all my older siblings knew but yeah when I was growing up super religious family Went to church twice, sometimes three times a week. Wow. Definitely grew up in the church. And I am super thankful I did because I feel like it definitely instilled amazing values in me. Even though I would consider myself non-practicing, mm -hmm. I definitely am thankful for growing up in the church because I think it helped to strengthen the character of the person I am today mm -hmm. and allowing me to see how I can make my surroundings better in how I treat people and the love I share. So coming from a family that had no money but a lot of love, that just became second nature. So hand in hand with kind of the church values, but in the same respect, also caused challenges. Then when Lou, I lost my sister to MS, that was probably one of the hardest things. Watching my sister go from fully active, volleyball team, super outgoing, to losing feeling, 
in her hands and then her feet. And eventually she got pregnant right around the time that we found out she had MS. And it was really bizarre because it was progressively going downhill. They thought it was hypothyroid, hyperthyroid. Then they thought it was mono. And then, because I guess it's a specific test that you have to take for them to narrow down, but they have to go through all these other things first. And by the time they found out, she found out she was pregnant. And it put the MS into remission. And she gained all feeling, all movement, all speech, and everything back during the pregnancy. But then the moment she gave birth, she lost sight, her ability to control her eyes, all movement. She then had to be on a machine to help her breathe. She mm. lost her the ability to digest food. Like it was literally came back tenfold. And that was probably difficult because there was a moment I thought, why can't they just make her body feel like it's pregnant all of the time? Mm -hmm. If the pregnancy put it in remission, why couldn't they do that? And by the time she actually passed, I think it's hard because, you know, I used to cut her hair well before I did computers back then, but she couldn't even, she had, she was in a hospital bed for the last portion of her life and it was hard to watch but yet allowed me to use my computer background to make things that would help her communicate since she lost all speech and whatnot that was a huge portion of she was the closest because like you said my siblings and I are five years apart so my oldest sister was already out of the house by the time I remember, she had her first child when I was four. So my nephew, there's pictures of me being a baby, holding a baby. <laughs> it's funny because they're like Uncle Phil and I'm like, technically you're 42. <laughs> I mean, yes. So it, it was kind of weird. And my sister was, uh, oldest sister was gone pretty much most of my life for, for the longest time. She was the black sheep of the family, pregnant before marriage and married a sailor and lived in free, uh, various places as he went from military base to military base. My older brother, genius. So in my family, I'm like the dumb one, which <laughs> cracks me up. But yeah, my, my brother graduated high school at 14, had his first aerospace business for NASA at 18 until the Lord called him. And he's now a pastor. So in my dad's side of the family and in my generation, all of my cousins and whatnot are preachers. So yeah, I was definitely my sister. I remember the day she called me and said, Phil, um, thank you. And I was like, why Val? Why? And she's like, Oh, because I'm no longer the black sheep of the family. <laughs> you, you basically are, have taken the reins in that. I'm so sorry for the way the family is going to treat you, but I'm glad it's you, not me anymore. And we laughed, but I did not want to be the black sheep. <laughs> yeah, that's that. That's basically what had happened. Was she's like, oh, thank, thank you, and I was like, oh, it's like, uh, you're welcome, question mark. Yeah, I don't want this. Either. Yeah, I don't, I don't want this either. Yeah, for sure. My generation, I definitely was the one that was the outcast, and 
whatnot. But I think growing up in a Christian household, it made it good and moments of uncertainty. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you were saying that you loved San Jose and didn't even know there were bad parts of town. Yeah. Like in San Jose, because you were just like school, church, home, school, home, church, or whatever yeah. the day was. But basically, your life was kind of pretty beautiful in oh, one yeah. sense, if we section it out. And you did some pretty cool stuff in the church. I mean, the, the church for you, there's a like a split in your heart yeah. because it was, I mean, tell us some of the cool opportunities. You're telling yeah. me some cool stuff you got to do with the church. For sure. Like I, I'm so thankful I grew up in the church. Just, I it still did values in me. It, it gave me the character of the person I am today for sure. But yeah, growing up, I had opportunities. I was in a Christian singing group for three years, traveled to U.S., doing shows, going church to church to church, uh, mission trips. I was mission trips to El Salvador, Guatemala, helping to build orphanages for the children there. Pretty awesome. Yeah. I was in a, a Christian mime troupe. <laughs> um, yes, yes, I was a mime. That was back when mimes were trending, before TikTok. Yeah, so did that. Gosh, we had a, a skate park in our church. We had uh, volleyball, like we had, a, it was, I don't know, growing up in the church made my life exciting. What I didn't know was in the areas surrounding where I lived, apparently there were bad things happening. <laughs> I was 100% oblivious growing up, super, what I now know was sheltered. But I think you don't know what you don't know if you don't know. Yeah. And... In those, did a good job. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely am thankful for... In that way. In that way. But yet, growing up in a Christian household definitely created mental anguish in the aspects of it was gay. No one knew. And that was wrong. Yeah. And So, at a young age, you knew you were different. Right, Phil? Yeah. And you told me that at four years old, you got into some curious trouble. <laughs> That's for sure. With a friend. And you, you were attracted to boys. But <clears throat> also knew that you had to hide this fact, you know. And two years later, that boy told his parents and they told yours. And they sent you to a therapist who didn't approach you in the right way. And you shut down and didn't say a word to him. And it wasn't spoken of again. And you said at six is when the self loathing came in yeah talk to us about this time in your life and the scare you got when you were 11 later on but talk to us about this time in your life from four until 11 yeah you know so we just talked about the good part of being in the church and how amazing that was for you in one sense yeah but because of this talk to us about that yeah you know um i remember growing up it's weird because i definitely didn't know I was gay, but I knew there was something different. Like you said, got into some curious trouble with. You uh, liked boys. Yeah, I, I and it's weird. I, it's I. I don't know if I associated the fact I liked boys oh, with sorry. Okay. liking boys. You were too young, probably. Yeah, I was definitely way, way too young, and. Even the, the things that I got into were 
me going through what I thought should or would happen. And, but yet on the inside, I knew that my actions were not good and that it was bad and that whatever it was, I should hide it. And so after getting into some curious trouble, like you said, that my friend told his father, who then told my parents, who then put me in therapy and a therapy session because we only made it past one. Barely. And, you know, even in the time between when they did that, I don't think I even had the true understanding of what was happening. I was too young, but yet I knew there was, and it's weird because I, I know now today that it was an attraction that I was, I look back and I'm like, okay, I was gay. I did know. I did things with boys that you shouldn't do with boys, but they kept chalking it up to, oh, well, kids will be kids. Boys will be boys. It's not a big thing. Just, you know, keep it in check. And so I think in the back of my head, I thought, oh, well, I'm just doing what everyone does. But I knew I didn't want to do those same things with girls, mm -hmm. but still had no clue. I remember when, because again, growing up in the Christian household, there was there was that time, I mean, the therapy session had happened and he had definitely gotten me to a point in the very first question, making me feel so uncomfortable, I shut down. And then it was just not talked about. And it wasn't till, it still wasn't talked about for a long time. But I remember once I turned, gosh, I was 11 about that time. And I remember I came home from school, the car was in the drive the TV was on, the windows were open, the front door was unlocked, and I came home, walked in, and I literally was like, Mom, Dad, Missy, and no answer, and I walked around the house, and no one was there, and I'm like, okay, but the house was unlocked, and the doors were unlocked, and the windows are open, and the TV is on, and there's a plate of food right there, like... They're here, but they're not here. And all of a sudden, that religious aspect that I had grown up with dropped like an anvil on me. And I remember literally shutting down because I thought that the rapture had happened and God came and took my family to heaven and left me behind because I was different. Because I still hadn't associated the word gay with who and what I was. And I thought the, I remember I curled up in a fetal position and I was just rocking back and forth when all of a sudden my sister, my brother, and my mom and dad walk into the house and my mom's like, What's going on? And I remember I sat up and I was like, no, nothing, nothing. Where were you guys? Where were you guys? And my mom was like, Oh, we went next door to. Don and Dan's house, uh, they want your sister to babysit. And I was relieved. I was relieved that God hadn't left me behind. And I think I grew up pretty much up until I had a better understanding of my own religious connection to God and what 
how I have my personal relationship with God. But growing up, it definitely gave me mental anguish. I definitely was like, oh, what was that TV show? Not Little House on the Prairie, the one where John Boy. But like growing up, we used to open our bedroom doors and we would all sing songs together and we would tell stories about, I can't wait till we're all in heaven together. And that was my childhood. I remember laying in bed and talking with my parents from their bedroom, my brother and sister from their bedroom, and we're all the house and all the lights are off and we're talking about how amazing it's going to be in heaven and how we'll all be together. And in the back of my head growing up, it was always that mental of just play along, just play because you're going to go to heaven too. You're going to go to heaven too. You're not actually this way. And I think even thinking about what my future was, I never really pictured a girl or a boy. I could see the house. I could see the fence. And it was definitely a classic white picket fence. It was a classic, like, this is what you do when you grow up and get a house and get married. And I always assumed I would get married and have kids. And that's what I wanted all growing up in my life. And... It was always kind of a shadowed out person. I never truly saw whether they were male or female. So in my mind and with the way society was, you just assumed it's going to be a girl. Obviously, I'm getting married to a woman. Clearly, that's who I am. And it wasn't until way older that I think I had the actual connection of this is who I am with what the word was of being gay. That was a, that was kind of a rough day having yeah. that realization. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel, I just uh, feel bad that you had to hide so much as a little kid and just had to not, be able to fully be yourself because you knew that in doing so it was not going to be accepted you know and gosh I just yeah I just can't even imagine I mean childhood is for us to be free and figure out who we are and run around and not have a care in the world right and here you were as a six-year-old through to junior high which we'll get to and you were already starting to hide who, who a part of who am. you were because My authentic of... self was definitely something I, no one could see. And even to this day, I think I'm a little guarded because I was always scared Yeah, growing up. And I didn't know any better. If you asked me, even to this day, I would say I had a great childhood. I think you pick and choose the things you want to focus on. Yeah. Uh, when I look back, I'm like, oh, okay. There maybe maybe what happened was that that contributed to this aspect of who I am. For sure. And definitely gave me mental strife growing up. But if you ask me, I had a great childhood. Yeah. I didn't I wouldn't know any different. Yeah. Yeah. So you alluded to you figuring out you know, gay and what that was. And you told me it was the first day of junior high. You finally got Seventh that grade. label 
of who you were and to connect the name of that. Tell us about that on that day in junior oh, high. Oh, gosh. It was first day of junior high, Burnell Junior High in San Jose. And, gosh, first period class social studies. And I'm at the bottom of the stairs. And I was wearing a blue puffy jacket. Like, I can remember what I was wearing, where I was standing. I was leaning up against the pole. The stairs were directly behind me. I was facing an apple orchard in San Jose. And all of a sudden, I had that connection of gay. And I, growing up, they used, to, they used to call me gay and fag and all of that. And... You just played, oh, yeah, no, no. Because in my mind, I wasn't. In, I liked boys, but I wasn't gay. I guess I really didn't have that connection. And when I was that first day of junior high, I remember so vividly that realization of, oh, oh, the word gay is how I'm feeling. And I connected the word or the label of what I was to how I was emotionally feeling. Mm. And from that moment, I knew I had to even be more guarded mm. because of the family I grew up in, because it wasn't technically socially, it wasn't trending yet. There wasn't a TikTok video <laughs> about how cool it is. It was literally that realization that, I could lose all my friends, all my family, and everything because I had grown up knowing that this was a sin. This was not good. Even before I had the association, I think mentally and emotionally, I knew that what I was doing was not good. Mm -hmm. I think I was looking at it more as a sex aspect mm -hmm. that uh, not until you get married... So the male-female role, I didn't have that understanding. I just knew that I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing because you have to save yourself for marriage. And it wasn't until then in junior high that I realized, oh, oh, and, and it has to technically be a girl. Mm. Oh, so definitely who I am is not cool. <laughs> not cool at all. And that in turn then created an even stronger self-loathing of, I have to hide this. I remember growing up, I had to scan everything I would say for now what I would look back and go, oh, you were looking for homosexual content mm -hmm. in how you say things and really put on like, oh, got to use my butch voice. Versus being like, hey, how are you? <laughs> and knowing that even my own aspect of how I convey myself to people, I've got to check my clothing because I didn't want it to look super gay. And so I had to make sure that before I said things to anybody that I would pre-scan it for homosexual content so that they couldn't figure out. Although... Pretty much. I mean, you're sitting right in front of me. You take one look at me and you're like, oh, yeah, he he plays for a different team for sure. <laughs> I tell like even my students, 
I'll be like, okay, the, you know the moment I open my mouth to start teaching class. Yep, he's definitely gay. <laughs> I mean, it could have been the fact that I reference my husband frequently, but I'm like, I'm not gay. I'm not gay. He's gay, but I'm not gay. Yeah, so it was definitely mental anguish. It was knowing that I had to protect myself. I had to scan what I did and how I said it for intonation and inflection and don't overemphasize and don't stand with your feet too close together because guys walk with a little bit more of a, a swagger and a little bit more spacing i would i i if i could i would walk heel toe all the time mm -hmm. like one right in front of the other i love a good sachet which didn't help growing up <laughs> or the fact that my family knew they they knew they could tell just for my actions and the things that I did, they they knew, but they weren't going to give in. I'm not gay. I'm choosing to be whatever. It was just a phase. It was just a phase. I mean, I guess it is still a phase. I mean, I'm in my 40s now. So I've <laughs> only... still time, I've, I've, There's still time. I've only been gay for like 40 years. Like the other years, it doesn't like... I wasn't. So I can always go back to my birth years. When life was simpler. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you told me in junior high you have friends in sports and only a tiny bit of teasing. And so talk to us about how junior high wasn't too bad. Yeah, no. I loved junior high. I was really good at hiding. Plus, I don't know, when you're that young, sometimes you don't really fully comprehend and understand the things that are going on around you at that age. Yeah, I... I Got teased a little bit. I wouldn't say overly excessive. I look back and say probably no more than anybody else. Mm -hmm. That kids just make fun of kids. Mm -hmm. I am so glad we didn't have social media growing up. Oh Good Lord. <laughs> Children of today. Whew, I couldn't handle... That would have been a whole... That would have been next level. So I'm glad that, you know, they had to send a carrier pigeon. No, I'm just kidding. Like, it was like snail mail and it was phones attached to walls. And so... What sports did you do? I did... Back in junior high, I used to run track. I was on a swim team. And it wasn't until high school I started playing water polo. But yeah, gosh, it was definitely difficult because I then had that understanding of being gay so then it made showering in the locker room awkward because i was worried about one you're at that age your body has a mind of its own mm -hmm. and sometimes it can it, all you need is a cool breeze and <laughs> so it definitely put me oh and i did wrestling in junior high that's right i did wrestling um, and volleyball in junior high. Busy. Yeah, I, I, if it was a sport, I, I played. I loved. Uh, it was super physical and active. But I, oh yeah, like I had to give up wrestling the first time I became aroused during a wrestling match. Which now I know uh, that happens. Doesn't matter if you're gay or straight. That just that happens to some guys. Mm -hmm. Back then, though, I'm like a hand. I remember I was right after a match. I literally ran to the bathroom because you're in that spandex leotard. Yep. Pretty much can't hide anything in a spandex onesie. Yeah. And remember after that first match, running into the locker room 
and literally having to change and went home. Everybody else hadn't even gone. I was so embarrassed of what my body was doing and was like, there's no way they're going to, everyone's going to make fun of me. And so I used to really make sure I would, if I had to shower was the first one in there or the last one in there, because I never wanted anybody to think that I was watching them or looking at them. I was more concerned about me and how this could look for me. And I think when you're growing up, it is more all about me. And you don't really see sometimes that, no, the other kids at that age were probably thinking somewhat of the same thing embarrassed to be changing in front of other guys for the first time and showering in front of other guys for the first time. And that's definitely hard. I think with what I was feeling, plus the religious aspect that was telling me that what I was feeling was wrong and evil, that it put extra stress. But yeah, growing up, uh, junior high, I loved running track. I used to run cross country, super active. But I think as I got older... It began, I don't know, kids got smarter. I got more flamboyant. Yeah, why don't you tell us about the big changes in high school? Your parents moved across the street and it changed everything. Oh my gosh, yes. So tell us a little about that. It was weird. I couldn't understand growing up how we could literally move across the street and I had to go to a whole new school district, be bused like 25 minutes a school I mean, when all of my friends who lived on that side of the street were going to the high school my sister graduated from. Yeah, that's crazy. That literally, like, but they're my friends. I grew up with them. I feel like I should go to that school, but I, uh, literally one, the other side of the street, you had to be bused to this other school. And I remember going to Morgan Hill, Live Oak High School in Morgan Hill, California, even though I lived in San Jose. I lived on the cusp of Southside San Jose and Morgan Hill. And so I got bused to this school, which was a blessing and a curse, I think, all in it itself. For sure. Because of what would happen later on, having my parents not that close made it easier to kind of conceal and hide stuff that then became more evident. And in high school, it was definitely a shift. Well, let's dive into that stuff. Things took a dramatic change when you talked to a girlfriend and confided in her about being gay. So tell us about that. Yeah, gosh, she was a good friend, a really good friend. And I thought I could trust her and and felt like, okay, I can't tell my family because I'm not willing to sacrifice my family over this. So maybe I'll just start with a friend. And I remember I was like, hey, I think I might be gay. There was a, like, I, I didn't want, I, I'm not even sure. I'm not, I mean, I was, <laughs> but I, I didn't feel like I could say that. And so I said, you know, I think I might be gay. And she was like, oh yeah, no, that's, that's totally cool. Awesome, you know, I'll see you later and went home. Yeah, and walk us through that next day and the new life for you as the openly gay high school kid. The uh, only one, I think, well, right? 
Yeah, yeah, at that time. It's funny because it wasn't till years down the road that I f- technically found out how all of this happened. So right. it, I now know that she went home that day and told her boyfriend, who happened to be the captain of the baseball team, and told her boyfriend, hey, you won't believe what Phil just told me. Mm-hmm. He's gay. And he then, because it was California, was having his friends over for a swim party. And when all of his teammates and friends got to the house, they were swimming. And he said, you won't believe what my girlfriend just told me that Phil just told her. He's gay. And still oblivious to all of this going on, went to school the next day. And I remember I pulled up, got off the bus and went to go walk to the cafeteria to get breakfast. And as I was walking through the cafeteria or across the quad to the cafeteria, I could see and it's weird. You, it's when you feel people looking at you. You can almost feel that those eyes on you. And I remember I was walking and I, there was a point I like turned around and looked. Do I, do I have something like a sock stuck to my back? Do I have toilet paper on my shoe? Like I remember and I would look over at them and they would be up and they'd look away. And I remember as I was walking, I heard these couple of kids. They were like, there he is. That's all I heard. I could hear him talking, but then I heard, there he is. And I looked over at him and they looked at me and then they quickly turned away. And I was like, okay, no big deal. So I went and got my breakfast from the cafeteria. And my locker was the first locker on, and our lockers were outside. So I remember I got my breakfast and I went to go round the corner where the lockers were. And as I turned the corner I had the center locker on the first row and I turned the corner and on my locker in red spray paint said die faggot die and I was all oh okay well there's there's no way that that was meant for me nobody knows I only told one person there's no way it could have gotten out and so I quickly got my first period books and shut my locker and quickly walked off and was like, okay, it's, it's obviously not me. They're not talking about me. And I think you start having a little bit of denial that somebody said something because there's no way she would have told anyone. I told her that in confidence. And then as I was walking to my first period class, I walked past the men's bathroom and over the men's bathroom said, no fags allowed. And I was all, oh God, I think... I think they might know. Oh, no. Oh, no. And I continued to walk to my first period class. And I remember I rounded the corner because my first period was at the back by the gymnasium. And I rounded the corner. And on the wall of the gymnasium, they had spray painted, kill all homos. And I realized at that point that things just got real. So I went to my class and I remember every day the school would spray paint over the bathroom, over my locker, over the gymnasium. And every day in red spray paint, they would come back and spray paint, die faggot, die on my locker and no fags allowed over all the men's bathrooms. And it 
it just began to get progressively worse. The kids used to tell me on a daily basis, dude, no one likes you here, dude. Dude, you're never going to amount to anything. Dude, just go kill yourself. Do us all a favor. Nobody likes you. Nobody wants you here. Do us all a favor. Go kill yourself. You're never going to make anything of yourself. No one is ever going to love you, dude. And... Your principal even... Called me in. Kicked you out of... Yeah. Oh, out of sports. Because it got so bad that parents of the other students that were on my water polo team, my track team that they then told the, the principal, you either kick that fag out of sports and don't let him go in the locker room, or all of us are going to pull our children from all sports, from football to baseball to everything. So you decide, is this kid worth you losing every team? So the school didn't even have your back. No. They definitely, I remember... Got pulled into the principal's office and was like, Phil, you know, unfortunately, we're going to go ahead and just make you exempt. I didn't have to take P.E. in high school because the gays weren't allowed in the locker room or the gymnasium, which they did get sued later for after I graduated, which now I regret that I didn't join in in the class action lawsuit because apparently they got paid pretty handsomely because it continued the years after I graduated. But your trauma was too high. It was too high. And so a part of that. Yeah. And when they said, you know, you don't have to take PE in high school. You, I was like, great, that's fine. I don't need to take PE. Didn't even fight it. But the kids, I don't know, they, they created this fun game where they used to get in their cars and hunt me down after school and throw bricks at me from a moving vehicle. Yeah. And I remember this one time I got hit with a brick, side of my head, huge goose egg, side of my face was black and blue, and I went home, pulled my hood over, put my head down, walked in, and I remember my mom, she was like, ah, ah, Phil, come back here. What happened? What's going on? And I was like, well, I tripped. I fell. I did this to myself. I hurt myself. I just don't want to make a big deal of it, mom. It's totally fine. I'm just going to go to my room. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. When somebody tells you they're fine that many times, they are the farthest thing from actually being fine. I just remember I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine, mom. I'm fine. I did this to myself. I did this to myself, knowing that they had been chucking bricks at me, bags of shit at me. They were spray painting my locker. And because we were technically, my school was in a different city. Everything that was going on that was in the local newspaper and, and everything, my, my parents didn't know because it wasn't, it, what, I wasn't technically going to school in the city in which I lived because I lived on that one side of the street. And so that's why I say it's a blessing and a curse because I was able to hide what was going on from my family and shield them or at least think I was shielding them. But I remember that time, that last time I had gotten hit in the head with a brick because you can hide bruises on your body and 
you know, getting hit in the back or leg or whatever. But when you get hit in the head and your face is black and blue and you have a goose egg, kind of hard to hide that. And so it wasn't until later after talking to my mom after everything happened that I she told me what had happened. Because my mom, she ended up calling my counselor at school and saying, hey, is there something going on at school? I hear Phil crying himself to sleep every single night and he won't tell me what's going on. And the other day he came home with bruises and the side of his face was black and blue. And my counselor said, well, since he came out and told everyone he's gay, some of the kids have been giving him a hard time. And my mom said, I'm sorry, did you just say my son was gay? My counselor Oh, you didn't know. My mom, don't worry. We'll take care of it. And I remember, and I, gosh, anybody listening, you know that moment when you walk in your house and mom and dad are sitting on the couch with their arms crossed and they say, (laughs) come in, have a seat. We need to have a talk. (laughs) I remember at that point being all, oh, oh. It finally happened. They know I can't hide it. They know. And they sat me down and let me know. All right. We've decided you're going to be straight now. So, you know, no more of this gay nonsense. You're not gay. You're choosing to be gay. And the demons inside you are making you this way. And if you pray the gay away, you won't be gay. This is a choice. You're choosing this lifestyle. And we're choosing that that not be your life. So we've decided. And I remember like saying like it, it doesn't work that way. And I think even a day or so may have gone by because I remember my mom saying, I thought I thought we talked about this, that you you weren't gay anymore. And I remember saying it's not a choice. Trust me, if I could pray the gay away or if I could choose not to be gay, Who would choose this type of life? I'm not. That's just who I am. I now know that because of friends, family, the church, they had recommended to my mom and dad that they give me an ultimatum and let him know, if you don't choose to be straight, pack up your stuff and move out. And at that point, I had just finished telling him I'm not choosing to be gay. This is who I am. So at 15, I packed up a duffel bag and I... Well, homeless. Pretty much homeless. Left at that point. And I knew that the only way I was ever going to make my life better and get to a situation that was better, I had to graduate high school. I knew that I couldn't just be on the street. And so I used to get into some bad, bad, bad stuff. Yeah, tell us about what your life was like on the streets and being a high school kid. Well, you know, I got mixed up with some people I probably shouldn't have been involved in. But because everyone was consistently telling me, dude, no one likes you, no one wants you here dude, just go kill yourself. Like, do us all a favor. You're never going to amount to anything that consistent. I decided that I was going to go 
to the bus stop that was at the back 40 of my school. And it was where I hid when they would try and hunt me down and throw bricks at me. So I went to the bus stop that was the only place that I felt safe. And you used to break into the school too sometimes, right? I did. Oh gosh, when it got yeah, cold. Tell us about that. I remember like it was fine on the bus stop and during certain months, but then as it started getting cold, I began figuring out how to break into buildings and you know, I used to be able to to use a paper clip in order to open the latch so that I could get into my first period class. I got smart about making sure sometimes in my last period class or throughout the day, putting a piece of tape over the thing so the door would technically shut, but it wouldn't actually latch so I could come back later at night. You used to work for the cafeteria too, so you could get food, right? Yeah. And you had a job. Yeah, and because one, again, I didn't realize how poor we were, but now I was homeless. I used to work in the cafeteria so that I could get lunch and have a safe place. I knew that I needed to get a job so that I could get off the street and not have to sleep in my first period class. And gosh, I remember there's one time my teacher walked in while I was asleep at my desk and she walks in, Miss Clough. I remember it was Miss Clough, my English teacher, walks in and she's like, oh, Phil, how did you get in here? And I was like, oh, the janitor let me in. I was here early. And I don't, I, I think as an educator now, I look back and I'm like, you should have actually done something. But I am also thinking back to how I was at that age. I'm not sure if I would have even been open, but every once in a while she would bring me breakfast. Knowing I was technically, I feel like she had to know I was sleeping at my desk. I think she was just happy that I was still going to school every single day. Yeah. And periodically like I realized that okay I'm gonna if I'm gonna not sleep at a bus stop I need to get a job so I did work experience where I took an extra class so that it allowed me to work a 40-hour week as a high school student and work past the normal cutoff time for kids because I was like one I just needed a gosh a place to go that was warm and I felt safe and I excelled and it gave me that semi feeling of acceptance and whatnot. But growing up on had a living at a bus stop, trying to figure out how I was going to navigate the rest of high school, having the kids tell me you'll never make anything of yourself. You'll never be loved. And then having the school turn its back on me and tell me that I'm not allowed to do sports and I can't take PE and I can't go in the locker room or the gym and my family telling me if you can't be straight you need to find a new place to live I even remember one of my best friends I knocked on his door and I mean we grew up together and I knocked on his door and he opened up the door and he looked at me and he said, dude, you're a fag. I can't be associated with you. And he shut the door in my face and we never talked after that. Friends had all turned their back on me. Family had turned their back on me and literally had hit that point where I felt no one was 
there. And this was about a year of you on the streets, right? That yeah. That you had hit this rock bottom. So tell us what happened. Gosh, as I got to that point, I began thinking, gosh, may maybe what they're saying is true. Maybe I'm not worthy to be loved. Maybe, maybe I won't make anything of myself. Maybe, maybe I should kill myself. And I began to get suicidal. And that self-loathing that I had felt since I was younger began, God, that voice is loud. Yeah. Every once in a while, that voice is loud, even to this day. Yeah. That tells me I'm not good enough. I'm not good at what I do. I'm, I'm not a good husband. I'm, I just had it on Monday. Yeah. Seriously, <laughs> that voice is loud sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I remember at that moment, I thought what they were saying was true. And one night at the bus stop, I took a knife and I slit my wrist. It was a practice run. And I was like, okay, I can do this. That was fine. I just need to do it a little deeper and do it for real. I can't believe I gave myself a practice run. That that also blows my mind. Yeah. I wanted to make sure, okay, would this work? And I remember I took the knife and slipped my wrist and laid my head back and all I wanted to do was die. All I wanted to do was die. I felt so alone. And I think when you're at that age, you get those blinders on and you can't see the future that God has for you, that you were designed for at that age. You can only see what's happening in that moment and what you're experiencing in that moment. And if it wasn't for a lady walking by that night, finding me bleeding out at the bus stop, picking me up and rushing me to the hospital, I probably wouldn't be here today. For sure. I still see her. Yeah. I actually teach. She moves, She lives in Modesto now. Um, I teach in Modesto, uh, so I always go back and see her. She gave me a place to live for the rest of high school. Yeah, and so tell us about that safe space that she gave you once she found out your story, because she wasn't rich either, you know. Oh, no. And her kindness, tell us about your she situation once you got out of the hospital. She had a two-bedroom, like, townhouse. Her daughter lived in one, and her, her husband lived in the other room. So it wasn't big by any means. And, gosh, I, I remember her husband was like, I don't think you should let him sleep in the same bed as our daughter. And she was like, he's gay. <laughs> if anything, I'm worried about our daughter attacking him. We don't have to worry about she's it. She's not gay. Yeah, she's not gay. He is. He's probably should be more scared than she is of him. And so she did give me a place, but it, it definitely gave mental anguish because I remember I was so angry. So, so angry. How dare you? How dare you tell me I'm not worthy to be left? How dare you tell me I'm not going to amount to anything? How dare you tell me to go kill myself? And I remember that moment when I thought, no, how dare me? for believing what they were saying was true. Yeah. I decide if I'm worthy to be loved. I decide if I'm going to make something of myself. I decide. 
No one gets that power over me. It's not my place to change somebody's heart. It's God's place to change their heart. And and you found a new vigor. Like you were like, right. That is literally what Let's it was. Do this. I was like, you know what? Let me show you what I'm capable of, which I know has contributed to the workaholic type A personality <laughs> that's like, oh, so what if I have three jobs full time? It's fine. <laughs> I'm going to show you what I can handle, what I can make of myself. And it was at that point that I was able to release some of the pain and the hurt. It still rears its ugly head every now and then when that voice comes to whisper in my ear. Well, you said you still have the knife. I Tell do. us about why you still have the knife. I keep, yeah, no, it's weird that thinking 40 years, 30 years later, I, have, I actually happened to come across it uh, the other day. Yeah, but and what you I said kept, is beautiful, though. I kept that knife as a reminder. A reminder of that one, I will never allow myself to get to that point again. Right. I will never be that person. I will never allow myself to treat myself that way. And that there are moments I'm like, I should just get rid of it. But it, it is that yeah, my husband hates it. Of course. Because he knows what. It represents, but I think at the same time, he also understands that's that's that letting that voice know inside my head that I will never cross that bridge yeah. again and allow myself to get to that emotional state where I feel like the only option. The sad thing is so many kids, so many people never get that opportunity to know how amazing they truly are. Yeah, yeah. I love it, Phil. Now, no one was at your graduation. Yeah. But you graduated high school. I you did. You worked hard. You figured for life. You had the support of this beautiful lady. And you moved forward and got an offer at IBM and saved and worked hard until you could move into your own place. Yeah. Tell us about that. Gosh, uh, yeah. I got an internship at IBM off of Cottle Road in San Jose, California. So you got yourself to college, right? I did. Uh, actually, IBM paid for my college. Excuse me. Uh, yes. Excuse me. Um, I was way too pretty to pay for things myself. <laughs> Um, basically what happened was I got somebody else to pay for it for me, which is probably why I didn't value my education like it did when I went to school the second time, because I didn't have to pay for it. Yeah. And, but it gave me purpose. It gave me a direction. Gosh, in those days, computers were brand new mm -hmm. and everybody graduating high school around the 90s were doing computers mm -hmm. and living in Silicon Valley. IBM's a big deal, Phil. IBM, yes. And so, yeah, working for IBM, it allowed me to pursue something I was talented at. I was good at computers. It gave you money. It gave me money, gave me a direction. And... Gosh, I remember it was about mm, seven years or so after technically leaving my house that uh, I bumped into my parents at the grocery store. That's crazy. That's crazy. Now, 
before let me backtrack for one second because I want people to know about what it felt like when you got your own place oh. you had been homeless and yeah. you hadn't been with your family you've got this internship and you're smart you're educated you're getting money just quickly tell us about what that was like when you got your first place your was, place Phil it was a sense of security I, and at the same time I also in the back of my head I had that voice of those kids telling me you're never going to make anything you need to work harder you need to work harder and so it's weird I truly didn't know how far I had actually come all by myself seriously I knew I knew that this was the next step this was the next step now I need to get a place okay now I got a place okay now I need to get a better job now I need to so uh, it was never ending it, it it's weird to think that it never truly felt like enough okay okay that's but interesting it, it was a sense of mild security yeah in that nobody can take it away from me now yeah. And the only person that can is me and what I do as to whether or not I continue to live there. And yeah. I get to control what that is. So it was a sense of security, a sense of control of my own surroundings. But yet it's weird that in my mind I could always hear those kids and that voice inside me saying, it's not good enough. It's, not good that's enough. so amazing, Phil. And no one's going to want to hear this, but I'm going to say it anyway because people are only going to want to hear about you. They don't want to hear about me. But as you say this, I relate to this when it comes to my body. Like, I thought that when I became a size six, yeah. I would have been made it. I would have celebrated. Yep. I would have been way pumped. I yeah. would have been happy. I made it there. And then I was like, okay, I need to be a size four. Yeah. You know, and so there was zero celebration. There was yep. zero like mental celebration, a relief, a let go because while you had box. while you had these um, voices in your head with these kid, tumultuous kids telling you you weren't good enough, I had society as a female telling me mm -hmm. size six isn't a good enough. Yeah, okay, you're not sorry, a you don't size get to rest. Two. Yeah, you don't get to rest. Keep going so we can fully Starve accept yourself you. More. Do, yeah. It's us, but it's us, Phil. It's it is. us. Oh, anyway, yeah. when you that was my selfish part to this conversation. That's how I'm relating to this because I thought your answer was going to be yeah, I had a celebration, and your answer was this. And, yeah. and and I get it. I get it, but in a completely different way. Oh, 100%. You know? Anyway. It was, it was never quite good enough. I was never good enough. I think also because yeah. of the religious aspect that yeah. it didn't matter who I was. I was still gay, and that's a sin. Yeah. And my family believing that I had demons trapped inside <laughs> of me yeah. that were causing me to hey, be gay you had it worse than me let's just put it out there but that's how i relate to that but yes yours yeah. was well a i lot mean more i think it's funny because i tell my students this all the time you cannot compare anybody's story to anybody else's story because we all live our own truth and in those moments, especially when we're young and we're growing up and even as an adult, we're living our own life and our own truth. And that is our world. And what happened to me 
from being homeless to having bricks thrown to school giving up and committing suicide and and everything that happened that is no better or worse than anybody else's story and because we live our own truth and whatever we're going through that is the worst it's it was for that person and yeah god will only allow us to handle what we can handle yeah yeah, I, he definitely pushed me to the limit on a few occasions. Yeah, I have a tough time with but, it. Yeah, but I wouldn't take back a single thing that happened to me growing up. Yeah, I know it made me the type of man I am today. I know it made me the husband I am, the teacher I am, my ability to connect, my ability to connect with my guests that were coming in the salon. It allowed me. To be my authentic self and truly teach me how to be humble, how to be a good man, how to put others first. And then especially as I moved into the hair industry that my clientele grew when I would have more of a servant's heart. And I think I saw even back from IBM to today that I've realized that if I have a servant's heart, if I I sometimes be the first one to act silly, if I put myself out there, that God will will make things happen. And I have to trust that there's a plan. Even the kids that we raised, gosh, we went through, we got all the way through the in-home inspection before the state when they came in they're like okay you guys passed your in-home inspection now which one of you is gonna move out and Mm -hmm. james and i were like i'm sorry like what are you talking about and they're like well the gays can't adopt Mm -hmm. i mean now we can Mm -hmm. but then we couldn't Mm -hmm. and i was like you gotta be kidding me I'm a teacher. He's a plant manager. We can financially afford up to seven kids. Mm -hmm. State of Idaho wouldn't Mm -hmm. let us adopt. Mm -hmm. God had another plan. Mm -hmm. Had, Had we adopted or been able to adopt these kids that we raised that now I'm so thankful for that came into our lives, we wouldn't have been able to help them and the struggles that they were going through and everything it allowed us to connect because my husband had a 100% opposite upbringing when it came to being gay and yet my story no better or worse than anyone else's those blinders make you only see but you can't compare because we're living our own truth and these moments of even when we were denied adoption God had another plan for us yeah and I, I feel like God has had a plan for what my life should be. Yeah. And I think being gay was a part of it and yeah. finding the love of my life. But I, I tell you, it wasn't till years after that I ran into my mom. We had this reconciliation. Tell us about that. It was in the shopping. Yeah, like, we, were, we were in so an, random, basically in Albertsons. Phil. And I turned the corner because I had gone back to san jose where ibm was and so i was 
in the neighborhood of where I kind of grew up, which I think was almost subconsciously intentional Mm -hmm. that I was maybe deep down hoping I would eventually. I mean, because I lived in the same neighborhood as my parents. I knew I was bound to run into them. And yet, if you would ask me, oh, no, 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 I I don't I don't ever want to see him again. But yet I feel like deep down inside, I truly made every effort to make it. And so I remember one day I was walking in. It was basically, it was called Lucky's, but it's in Albertsons is basically what it was. And I remember I rounded the corner and wanted to go down the canned soup and vegetable aisle. And (laughs) I turned the corner and my mom and dad were at the other end of the aisle. And I hadn't seen them in seven and a half years or so. My mom comes running up to me and she's like, Phil, oh my gosh, I love you. I miss you. I just want to be a part of your life. I don't care if you're gay. I should have never listened to friends, to family, your uncle, church. You're my son. I love you no matter what. I just want to be a part of your life. Oh, how did that feel, Phil? Oh my God. Tell me about that. In that moment, I felt like I was home. I felt like everything that had happened didn't matter anymore. I had had my family back. And it wasn't very long after that... I mean, we reconciled our relationship. I went home. I saw my parents. I saw my sister. My brother was gone at Fresno State. My (laughs) oldest sister was living in Pensacola on the military base there. So she wasn't really in the picture. So it was just my one sister and my mom and dad. And we healed our relationship, which I am so thankful for. Yeah. Because then all of a sudden, my mom had a random heart attack. Yeah, at, so you got a year with your mom. Yeah, about a year. And year, you, maybe some change. Oh, sorry. And yeah. you got to ask her questions and find out all these things that you've been telling us about. About yeah. the counselor, about your uncle and him telling them about yeah. all the main. I mean, you got to repair for that year and oh, find yeah. out so much from your mom about all the questions you had. Oh yeah, like you it was like open season. How mom. how did, how did you know when did, when did you like literally I feel like as a gay man I get asked these questions all the time. When did you know you were gay? Of course. When did was the first time? Tell me. I or, just uh, asked you. Oh, yeah. That, I mean that is literally <laughs> just um, the normalcy of being gay and and people. I think anytime you're different yeah. People are curious. And, when did um, you know you were different? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that I had those conversations. And I remember I asked my mom, so when when did you know? And she said, well, technically, your kindergarten teacher called your dad and I in and told us if they didn't put if they didn't put me in counseling, I would grow up to be gay. I looked back at my yearbook when my mom told me that. Literally was like, what? Grabbed my yearbook from elementary, which I still have to this day. Cute. Opened it up, and I looked at it, and I kid you not, a gay can spot a gay. Like, 100%. I looked at that photo and was like, oh, she's a lesbian. Oh, my God. 
That's how she knew. Because, like, I tell you what. I can I can spot a gay within a 10-mile radius. I'll be all, beep, beep, beep. I'm like, okay, there are four within walking distance. Like, we send communication through the ground. So, like, a gay can spot a gay. And so told my mom, and I asked my mom, you know, so many questions, you know. When did, what happened that made you confront me? And she said, well, this is when I called your counselor and she told me you were gay. I was outed by my counselor to my family, yeah. which I feel like, isn't there some sort of legal something that they're not allowed to? But again, a counselor. It was free and from the district. Yeah. They owe so you nothing. They owe me nothing. <laughs> I that don't is, know. No, I think you're 100% right. I have a gay friend who's a counselor for a school. I'll have to ask her. Yeah. But like, I, you know, I look back and I was like, oh, I, was that even legal? But she's like, oh, yeah, I said, you've been crying every night. And then is there something going on? And she said, well, you came out and told everyone you're gay. And I told her, I'm sorry, did you just say my son was gay? (laughs) And so that's how she found it. Like, we had these long, long conversations and healed our relationship. And she became my champion because she had even told me that the patriarch of my family... He was the one who spearheaded stirring the pot. Yeah, that if you don't, you. if you don't do this, and uh, because my dad was technically divorced and remarried, my dad was already the black sheep of the. So right. my side of the family, like my parents, and we haven't had a good run. We've been the black <laughs> sheep, apparently. <laughs> Which I didn't realize. You had to go ahead and be gay. Yeah, I took it next level. But like the reality was, and I didn't even realize this, that my dad was ostracized by the family yeah. when he got a divorce. Divorced. Yeah. And so yeah. he was already on, you know, thin, thin ice. Yeah. With the family. Jinx. Yeah, right? <laughs> because he had remarried and yeah. had divorced. Which that was a whole nother situation where she just left him with the kids, just left and never came back. So my dad got full custody and yeah, it all worked out. But then one day uh, she had a random heart attack at 52. Yeah, and she passed. Yeah, she thought she was having an asthma attack. Yeah. So she asked my dad to go get her inhaler out in the living room. And by the time he went and got the inhaler and went back to the bedroom to give it to her, she was already blue and gone. And it's, it's weird in the aspect that my mom knew she was going to pass. I... 100% genuinely feel like my mom was clairvoyant. Mm. My mom's side of the family, heathens, (laughs) very secular, (laughs) drinkers, smokers. I'll go even as much to say that my grandma was a Satanist Mm. who set my mom's crib on fire when she was an infant, which led to her being in foster care growing up. So I come from a long line of crazies. This which, is great. <laughs> yeah, long line of crazies. And then my dad's side of the family, holier than thou. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I feel like I am literal a 50-50 split of 
both sides are crazy. Pure evil and pure goodness. <laughs> but I'm like both sides of the crazy. <laughs> and uh, my mom sent me a letter. She sent all of the kids a letter. And it showed up at our houses on the day she died. Mm-hmm. I remember finding out my mom had passed away and going to the mailbox that evening and pulling out a letter from my mom mm-hmm. that told me how proud she was of me mm-hmm. and how she couldn't wait till I did hair and she could be in my salon and mm-hmm. she saw the future but she literally sent a letter to all of her kids. She'd picked out the music for her funeral. She'd put, picked out every. She had a shoebox with everything. And then she had this random heart attack and passed away. And it was a short period of time afterwards that my sister passed away of MS. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Double, double yeah. whammy. I remember my mom and I had a conversation and she told me no parent should have to bury their child. And she didn't. And she made a comment that I look back now where she said, I won't bury my children. And in that moment, I looked at it as you're right, mom, you know, Missy's going to be fine. Missy's going to be fine. I now know feel like I know what she meant. Yeah. Because she had already planned out everything and she'd sent letters and passed away right before my sister did because she couldn't bear the hurt. I truly believe that. That's amazing. Now, once your mom passed, your family disowned you. Right back. You didn't... No, it was 27 years you told yeah. me thereabouts until you saw saw them again. And that was after this patriarch guy had passed and everyone, I mean, you just saw them. I remember yeah. because I've known you like for 12 years, yeah, 12, 13 years. I remember you telling me that you were nervous to go back. Oh what was gosh. that like for you to see everybody? Oh my gosh. Okay. So first of all, Someone, thank you, Facebook. Thank you, social media. Because Facebook had suggested you may know this person. Mm. And then that person was like, huh, that guy has the same name as my cousin. Mm. That's weird. So they reached out. Hey, you know, I'm Allison Elmer's daughter. Are you related to Phil and Debbie? And I'm like, yes, those are my parents. And they're like, oh my God, you know, we haven't talked in so long. Yeah, it's been 27 (laughs) years. It's been a hot minute. I feel like a few things have changed. And I feel like even I haven't. Yeah, I feel like the same. I feel like the question, are you still gay? came out. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I gave it up a little bit in the 2000s and then thought, "Mm, better not. I'm definitely gay. I'm a gold star gay. Okay, I'm a gold star gay. I've been gay since the day and never, never. I've never been with a woman. I never wanted to be with. I, I dated a lot of girls through when I was pretending 
But yeah, they reached out and were like, hey, you know, we're having a family reunion. We would love it if you would come. You had so much anxiety and excitement. Oh my gosh. I literally, <laughs> like, remember talking to James and I was like, there's... They are crazy. They are crazy <laughs> to think that I will be showing up because, like, they wanted me to come to the family lake house in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And last time I was at the family lake house, I was cornered in a bedroom as they tried to cast the demons out of me. Right. So fun time. I already had a little <laughs> bit of trauma yeah. and they're like, come back. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, am I walking into an exorcism? Right. right. That's literally what I had felt. And yeah, valid, valid. And I remember I asked, I was like, why now? Why now? Why are you reaching out to me? Yeah. Like almost 30 years later. Yeah. 27 years later. Yeah. And their response actually made me think they're like oh phil when you were kicked out of the family you were four years older than us so you were 15 we were 11 we were 9 to 11 my most of my cousins i was the older cousin in kind of my rung other than my siblings and there were one or two that were older and whatnot but for the most part they they told me they're like phil when you left we were so young, we didn't have a voice. Yeah, yeah. We couldn't go to our parents and say, you can't treat him like this, it's wrong. You're 11. You yeah. are nine years old. But at that moment, I didn't see it that way. Yeah. Like, I was like, why didn't you? How come you never tried to reach out? And they're yeah. like, first of all, there wasn't social media. Yeah, yeah. So there wasn't. We didn't know where you were. We didn't know where you number. were. Or your phone number. So they had no way. I mean, it's not like social media and you have cell phones on you. Like you Find still had to be. In an hour. Yeah, yeah, like you so pagers. I what's going on with yeah, my cousin? I tried paging Mom. you. Like it's it wasn't like that. You, so I was like, okay. And my husband's like, oh no, you need to give your family a chance mm. to heal. Mm. They're they're attempting. Mm -hmm. Don't pass this up. And I was like, okay, honey, but like listen. I just need you to be well aware. <laughs> do not get left alone. Let me tell you my story. <laughs> yeah. I told him, do not get cornered. Yeah. Do not be alone. Know yeah. where all the exits are. I remember you telling me this, man. Oh, my gosh. You must have been doing one here. Because when we sit down, yes. it's three hours. So you're like, Melissa. And so I remember all Lit of this. Yes. We, had, we literally had this conversation right before I was like, I had to yeah. tell him, don't get trapped. I mean, Heath... James thought, my husband literally thought I was lying <laughs> until he met my family. How'd it go? Tell uh, us. It was phenomenal. I healed and reconciled my relationship with a large percentage of my family. Awesome. Uh, but, oh yeah, no, James is, now knows why I am the way I am. Uh, example, we get there to the lake house and... My aunt and uncle meet James and I at the door and they give us a big hug and, you know, oh, welcome. So uh, you're, you guys are going to be in this room on the East Wing and uh, make sure you go set your stuff down, get settled in. And then if you guys could sign the contract that we have on the bed, um, we'll be by in about 15 minutes to pick that up. 
And James is like, I don't understand. So, oh, you see, in my family, um, we have to sign contracts that have clear expectations of what will be happening. And uh, we get up to the room. First of all, it's two twin beds. Mm-hmm. Because, again, they were like, we slept together because we are tiny. I weigh 12 pounds soaking wet and have to stand up twice to make a shadow. Yeah. So we slept on that twin bed together. But we walked up there and sure enough, there is an eight and a half by 11 on pretty paper that lists out these are the house rules you will be up by this time the bed will be made by this time you'll be down for breakfast breakfast is from this time to this time if you miss it you don't get breakfast this is when lunch is served this is how dinner this is when we'll be doing family prayer time this is when we'll be like everything Like, we're going to go out on the water, and we're going to sing songs, and we're going to build things out of egg cartons, and talk about how it's wrong to tell lies. Like, everything was clearly an itinerary, (laughs) broken down by the half hour for the entire family reunion. Mm -hmm. And we had to sign it. Mm -hmm. And then my aunt and uncle came upstairs, knock, knock, knock. And James is like, oh, oh, damn, you're you're not kidding. I said, honey... (laughs) (laughs) Honey, listen, you know how crazy I am, and I am only half of my parents. So, welcome to Next Level Crazy. And Impressive uh, then, so big of them to uh, let you have your own room together as a gay couple. Yes, Um, it was a big step. Not a bed that we could technically be in. They (laughs) were technically... We had twin bunk beds. Next, hopefully, (laughs) one day. But again... We'll make it to the double bed. Yeah, we'll we'll get into a single bed. But honestly, everyone in my generation weren't allowed to sleep with their spouses. Mm. James and I were married. Legally, government married. Mm -hmm. Not like gay married. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We were like legal. Yeah. Um, so my cousins, my aunts and uncles got to share a bed with their husband mm-hmm. and or wife. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also know my family well enough to know that they didn't want to make me feel uncomfortable. Right. So my generation and below, whether you were married or not, had separate beds. <laughs> That's crazy. Because... They, I feel like, I genuinely feel that they were, if we make Phil and James do this, then we should make everybody do this. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. Or just let us share a bed. Yeah. I mean, which, you know, kind of, we're married. I yeah. feel like that should be an okay. But oh yeah, my cousin, Christy, oh God, her and Javon, like, they, they were like, are you kidding me? We can't share the same bed? Nope. <laughs> like, oh. You know that's not going to stop any of us, right? You're, we're just going to sleep spooning on a twin bed. But oh yeah, no, we all got twin beds. Um, our own individual, our parents and aunts and uncles got to share a bed with their spouse. You got to grow into that crap again, Yeah, Phil. you got you to right. pay your You're dues. Still, yeah. I still hadn't paid my dues. So oh, I'm glad it was such a good experience, It was. Phil. That's awesome. That, how fun is that? I had to heal the relationship with my brother because last time, gosh, he sends me Bibles. 
Even to this day, I think I got another Bible the other day with passages highlighted for me. Um, <laughs> Tell us what he said when your mom died. I was clutching my mother's casket when he told me, you know you're never going to see mom or the family again if you continue this gay nonsense. And I remember I looked up at him and said, I'm sorry, I am clutching the casket of my mother. And you're telling me I'm going to hell. And you're telling me I'm going to and hell. And we'll never see her again. Nice. Yeah. Good timing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, needless to say, my brother and I had a little rocky relationship, especially as he became a preacher, which, you know, I look back now because I can reflect uh, on, I am glad my brother cared enough about his brother and his convictions, his religious convictions, to say something in hopes that he could change what would be my afterlife, eternal life. Salvation. Salvation. I thank him for caring. How is it now, Phil? Better-ish. Mm -hmm. I think you also choose when and how you will put yourself in a position to allow yourself to be treated like that. Of course. Of course. Um, and I know limited is okay. Good. We talk, in fact, we talked just not too long ago. My oldest sister, her and I talk probably the most mm -hmm. because she's a heathen, just <laughs> like me. <laughs> And as a black sheep, black sheeps, we can talk to each other. So I've always had, in fact, I saw her even when I didn't see any of my other family. James met her, uh, has met her many times, loves her to death. She loves uh, him. And it's different, but I technically feel like I have a family that, accepts me ish mm. 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 I know I would say it's it's more at the don't ask don't tell right type just don't don't bring it up mm -hmm. I mean but even growing up and whatnot and even after my parents knew I I was embarrassed honestly embarrassed and I never wanted to put my parents in a position that my actions... So I, I would limit my gayness, per se. To have a during, relationship with them. To have a relationship with them. Even and partial. I think even at the family reunion, I toned it down a little bit. James says there are moments that I took it to just make sure that they were well aware things hadn't that changed that much. <laughs> but yeah, it it it's better. It's better. Yeah, um, tell I, us tell us about sorry. No, oh, no, just that is it I feel like I have a family as opposed to the family that I have with James cuz James's parents from the moment we started dating were like Miho, son. They have always, always. And I remember when James's mom told me, I'll never be your mom, but I'll be your mom if you need me to be your mom. 
Tell us about James. You and James have been together the same amount of time as me and Drew. Yeah. How we many are we at? 22? This. 22 this year. 22. 22, 22 in this May. Year. Can you believe it? Yeah, that I always been say. With one person I that always long. say <laughs> in gay years. That's like 72 <laughs> years. It's like cat years because we move really fast. But yeah, uh, 22 years is long for anybody. Yeah, I just can't even believe it. Yeah, it's funny because it's like. It's like my life before now that I'm 45, 46. It's like my life before Drew, my life after Drew. Yeah. You know? Well, not after him, with him. He's not gone yet. <laughs> no, he's still present. Yeah. I just saw him today. He's alive. <laughs> yeah. You guys, just so we're clear on that. And James is so beautiful. Thank so you. beautiful. Tell us what he means to you. Oh, gosh. He means the world. I love him so much. He's my polar opposite. I say I am a better person with him. And together, we make one amazing person. Yeah. We have <laughs> trained each other. When we are together in public as a couple, we know uh, where our, and we stay in our own lane. So we know if, if the conversation leans towards fashion, music, movies, science, math, Video games. Video games. Like, that. that's my wheelhouse. Um, computers, technology. He can't even program the VCR to stop blinking 12 o'clock. <laughs> like, that, I mean, he is a little bit less technologically, but he is history. He's English. He's a gardener. He's... Animals. He loves... He is, yeah, Dr. Doolittle. He like, is. Like, they just come flocking to him. Yeah. And so, together, we make a really good person. And we know when conversations go a certain way, uh, where I taper off, he picks up. Where he tapers off, I pick up. We, He's left-handed. I'm right-handed. Uh, I clean. He cooks. Um, he's the gardener. I'm the one that rebuilds and puts in new electrical and new plumbing and puts in subflooring. Like ramps. we ramps. Yeah. I built a ramp for his mom so <laughs> she could get in the house. <laughs> like we are literally opposites, but it works. Because first of all, there can be only one of me in a relationship, so I would not <laughs> me have. Too. Yeah, there me can't. Too. Oh my gosh, the it would one be one Melissa. There can only be one <laughs> Philip in any relationship, and one Drew. And that's if true. If there's two Drews, it'd be too boring. If yes. there's two Melissas, they'd be, be broken up hot. in two weeks. It would be. Yeah, it'd be <laughs> seriously. If there were two Phils, we it would be crazy. You're but, not boring, babe. I love you. Yeah, and neither are you, James. I love you as well. But yeah, he's quiet more reserved i'm a social butterfly mm -hmm. i talk to everybody i make friends with anybody who walks by mm -hmm. everybody but he compliments me yeah and i know that's why we've worked and because i don't know we have this general rule of thumb that is whatever we're arguing about worth breaking up over if it's not then get the hell over it. Yeah. Because if it's not, if you're not going to end the relationship over it, then don't be mad. Yeah. Um, and never go to bed mad at each other. Yeah. Uh, has been, and that one I learned from my parents. My parents were an amazing example of what a marriage should mm. be. Mm. My, like I said at the beginning, my dad, 
got up every morning and cooked us breakfast after he got home from Jamba Number One. And he was home when I'd get home from school. Mm. He was there for dinner. Mm. He took care of me. And I didn't know he was working three jobs. He never raised his voice once. And mm. I can ever recall at my mother. Mm. He was nothing but supportive. Um, my mom, she took care of my dad. Because my dad, he's very... Dum, da, dum, da, dum, dum. Dum, dum, dum. Okay. I call him like Jack Tripper meets Dick Van Dyke. Um, he's very slapstick physical humor. My mom is sharp wit, quick wit. She's extremely intelligent. I know I am a 50-50 split of my parents. I am. I know that's where I get my physical humor from. It's how my dad would deflect and my other aspect from my mom but that in conjunction with James makes me a more well-rounded person yeah and you two have been through a lot why don't you tell us how amazing it was for you to be able to be legally and lawfully wed yeah. as husband and husband yeah I remember that yeah. you got a ring got a ring and yeah. I mean you've been together the same as me and Drew yeah but obviously 22 years ago you weren't yeah. allowed to legally the, no, be the married. No, the gays weren't allowed to get married. Yeah, yeah. So, but you were able to get married. I mean, how awesome was that? Yeah. We did a commitment ceremony in front of uh, friends and James's family. My family, oh, that wasn't a thing yet. We hadn't mended our relationship till James and I were together for, I think it was 18 years. We'd been together before the relationship with my family was healed. So right. none of them came or would have come yeah um but we exchanged rings and vows and we did the whole got married yeah. and then you know years go on i remember we had to do power of attorney for each other because when we bought our first home i knew my family would be the type to if i died take half of the house from james right and that couldn't happen right if he died, if I died, it go. you're my husband. And I know at that point we weren't legally because the gays couldn't get married. Um, yeah, we did power of attorney. We got, we had it written in like up legally that okay. if we die, that we were protected for each other. Okay. Um, and then when we were able to actually get married gosh i think we, nine years after we were together or something like that mm -hmm. or nine years ago i've and i don't even know we'll ask james later yeah it all <laughs> it all runs together um because i the numbers man <laughs> i i definitely counted as 22 oh for sure and even though the government didn't recognize it we have the piece of paper that legally says um but yeah. That's it, awesome. Yeah, it was definitely something. We, we got married in Washington, then we got married. And I, did you know you could get married to the same person over and over again? <laughs> no. I'm going to have 50 marriage certificates and be like, oh, yeah, I'm gay married in this way. I'm gay married here, too. I'm gay. Oh, Kentucky? Yeah, I'm gay married there. Like, I be like, oh, now, I just don't think you have to do 50 divorces. But 
I'm going to get this a certificate night. in all 50 states. This we we gay married everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I've already told James. The only way he's getting out of this marriage is in a pine box. That's like... That he, is, I'm sure he's fine with that. Oh, yeah, for sure. But, now, you are a super hard worker, and you have a career. And yeah. you have... I mean, it's changing. It's changing. And you and I met because of your beautiful career in hairdressing. So you obviously changed from computers. Yeah. And you decided that... Your thing, you're going to mix that and come over and, and do this. And you've been extremely successful. I mean, Disneyland, I mean, all over the Shows country. I mean, just so many things. I mean, tell us about your career. Yeah, it's funny. Talking to the dean of the schools, um, of all the schools across the nation, he asked me, he's like, Phil, so why did you change from computers to doing hair? And I was like, honestly, when we moved to Idaho, there weren't very many computer jobs in Idaho. Uh, manufacturing for Micron, but that wasn't what I went to school for and wasn't what I did. And so I remember I worked for a small advertising firm off of Curtis when I first got here. Then realized I, I want to do something else. So I decided to go to hair school and I asked myself, huh? what are the gays good at? Mm. And I was like, okay, well, I feel like interior design, fashion, or hair pretty much is a stereotype. So I bet you I'm probably good at one of those. And Google searched, where's the closest interior design school? I'm all post fall. Okay, where's the closest fashion school? Okay, there. Where's the closest hairdressing? I was like, oh, right, right around the corner. Guess I'm going to be a hairdresser. Mm. And that really and was kind of the direction I ended up going. And I thought to myself, well, I used to cut my friend's hair. and used to sister, you said. Yeah, my sister's hair. I used to color my own hair. Because as I came out of the closet and went off the freaking deep end, <laughs> I was like, I need to be platinum blonde. I need to be so white. I need to be snow white. Like, <laughs> it was... You know, something I was like, okay, well, I kind of have a knack for it already. I should probably do that. So I went to hair school. James and I had just gotten together. He put me through beauty school. Mm. And we joked and laughed uh, that one day, honey, I, you won't have to work and I'll be able to support you. Because when I was in school, he didn't want me to work. Mm. So he supported me. In our first year, I didn't work. I was in school. Um, I just left graphics design and decided to do hair. Best decision of my life. Mm -hmm. And graduated, worked for a Great Clips, was my first job. I was a manager of Great Clips off of Boise Avenue, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. down around the corner. Mm -hmm. Then the school that I went to... It was a Redkin school. Uh, they called and were like, Phil, we want you. Have you thought about being an, a teacher? You should come back to the school and be a teacher. And I was like, I don't want to be a teacher. That's dumb. Because uh, I had a bad experience when I was in beauty school. The last thing I wanted was to go back to that school and teach. And But the one thing I was good at was because I felt like the teachers were never around to actually teach us how to do hair 
I would just read ahead and figure it out on my own. And students would frequently come up to me and say, Phil, could you help me with this? Or I'd be like, oh, can I show you something? I learned this and it made my life easier. And so the school recognized that I had a knack for, one, telling people what to do, but two, doing it in such a way that they could understand what I was showing them, um, which is why they called and asked me to be an educator. And I was like, no, thank you. They called for like three months. And I was like, no, I'm totally fine. Third time they called. I was like, okay, well, what what hours would I have to work? And they're like nine to five, Monday through Friday. And that was the same exact shift that James was working as a plant manager for Ausco American Linen. And so I was like, guess I'm going to be a teacher because I had was getting tired of having to work nights yeah. at the salon. And so I was like, I want to be able to work the same shift get off and both of us be off in the evening. So went back and did my student instructing and got my teaching license. And what I didn't understand is teaching. It wasn't a career, wasn't just a job. It was a, a calling. It was more than a career. I know that God had a plan for my life. And it involved me being an educator. The amount of... And it's funny because I say, I cosmetologically and psychologically transform the destinies of fellow human beings. That's what I do. I know that God put me in a place that I would be able to transform lives. And more than just doing hair. This year, I broke 300,000 raised for mental health and suicide mm, prevention mm -hmm. as a part of Paul Mitchell. Mm -hmm. It Being a part of this company, I love what I do, who I do it with, and the company I do it for. Mm. And I have had the opportunity to cosmetologically and psychologically transform destinies. Mm. Give people hope, inspire, motivate. And I knew that... The type of educator I wanted to be was everything that I didn't have when I was growing mm -hmm. up as, as a kid struggling with being gay, being homeless, having the educators teaching me in college to do computers, uh, the educators that taught me doing hair. I wanted to be the opposite of that and that I had to make a choice to be different to be that educator that was looking at every interaction as an opportunity to show and teach them something. And there's not a day that goes by that it's not one, hard work, but two, I see how I have inspired. And when I talk to the students, how they feel that one, I'm going above and beyond to provide them with an education that they deserve and that I'm there to support them in what they are doing amazing and share opportunities for growth that will help them to be stronger. And being an educator led to my drive, which I know goes back to those kids telling me that I'll never amount to anything. 
in that day that I said, I'll show you what I'm capable of. I know that's why I work the way I do, why I will travel. And me being an educator allowed me opportunities to then become a national educator. And so I covered 43 out of the 50 states. And then I knew that I couldn't stop there, that I should open my own salon. And so then doing hair while being an educator, still working behind the chair, opening up my own salon, I would work nine to, you know, four thirty, eight to four thirty at the school, immediately go from the school home, eat something if I had a moment, to the salon, work five to ten in the salon every day for twelve years. I worked 55 to 65 hours a week because I would not only teach at the school, go to the salon, but then I would have to go home and do two to three hours every night for my national educator's position in preparation for traveling and and preparing lesson plans and keynotes and doll heads and things that I would use as visuals to flip the classroom and make it more engaging for the learners. And that just kept progressing. It was funny because James and I were talking just the other day and he said, Phil, do you know that all your hard work that you've done over the last 20 years has provided us with what the rest of our life will look like and these opportunities that we have now of career options and being able to take his parents, my husband to Hawaii and be able to have a house, have a house, be comfortable, have a job, have a job, it's, allow James to be able to go and do that because you're in a position now to be able to pretty much work from whatever state you yeah. want. And now he won't have to work, which I will say... He did that. There was five or six years that he didn't have to work and he was yeah. just a stay-at-home trophy husband. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was so great. Oh my gosh. Uh, it was it was awesome and horrific all at the same time. Yeah. Because... He's a worker. Yeah. And that was it. He was trapped at home all day with just him and the cats by himself. <laughs> and, and I would... spiders. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The, the, <laughs> he, like I said, loves any insect animal. And I would come home and he would be like, oh, how was your day? What are you doing? How? Tell me all about everything. And I'd be all, honey, I am going to the bathroom right now. Could you give me a minute? I just walked in the door. And it truly was like, honey, I love you. You need to get a job. You need to go back to school. You Fed need to write a book. So good to him. Oh, it has. Yeah. Um, it, it did. It gave him outside things that he could connect with. When we were working at the salon we owned together, we'd go home and we would just talk more shop. Mm -hmm. It was, we had the same basic job, so that's all we ever talked about. Then when he wasn't there, then it was just he wanted me to share and... I'm like, I'm a teacher. I talk all day. Then I've been doing hair for five hours. I don't want to talk to nobody. Give me a second. <laughs> but FedEx gave him an opportunity to add to the conversation. 
have his own experiences that then we could conversate about. Yeah. And it became wonderful. Yeah. Now we have mom and dad that we're taking care of. Yeah. And so he's going to probably be a trophy husband that will stay home and take care of mom and dad. But again, this career that how I even wound up here, I don't know. It, it blows my mind. It's amazing. You deserve it. And like you said, it's part of a plan and you are living that plan. And I couldn't be happier for you and sadder for me. Like, yeah. because now what? You yeah. know, now I... You can come to Hawaii and get your hair done. Oh, I'm going to. Yeah, I'm going to. <laughs> we'll just we'll pop in yeah. every six weeks. I'll <laughs> I see know, you. Right? No, this is going to be awesome and no one deserves it more. And of course it's ended up like this. Of course it has. Yeah. Because of your hard work, your love and your belief. And I mean, let's get serious. You deserve to be able to be in Hawaii and be able to be in a place there and to be able to have sunshine and beach and stuff. And it's going to be awesome. That's why I knew I needed to bring you in before yeah. I lost you, Yeah. you know? And so I appreciate it. I just appreciate it so much and wish you all the best in the world. Thank you. Like when you're over there, we're going to keep in touch. For sure. I valued our friendship over the, over the decade and a half that yeah. we have known each other. Um, it is, it is awesome. I think that was the hardest thing knowing that I was, had been working a 20 year game plan to get to where I am today that in order to get there, I knew I had to do this and the connections I made with my clientele, they're not, they're not clients. They're not just friends. They are truly family i have watched your children grow up yeah you didn't even have one of them you've cut no i was pregnant when we first when i first got my hair done i was pregnant and you're like well do you want me to color your hair because it could turn out good or bad because pregnancy you hormones, catch I had fire no, you I may had be no fine idea. i was like oh huh this dude knows what he's talking i don't know i guess just cut it just, i yeah. don't know i think we just and cut it that first you, time You've made, you cut all of Takeshi's hair off and buzzed yeah. it, and not buzzed it, but cut it. You were the one that gave my sons their first mullets. Yes. You were, that they still have. Yes. You're the one that gave Yuki her first short hair, and yeah. when she shaved the side of her head, and then she grew it out, and you helped clean her hair up as she chose to grow it out. Yeah. Emiko wants to shave the side of her head, and I can't believe it's not going to be you that's not going to do yeah. it. And you just, I mean, your family. I your mean, family. you're part of my family. I'm like, I'm going to capture Drew's story. My kids' eyes light up. They're like, Phil, awesome. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, they know. I mean, you're part of oh, my yeah. family for the last, like, 12, 13 years. Yeah. I mean, we know and love you, and I love that. And I knew I had to get you on. And I told you when I first started the podcast. Yes, I remember. I'm like... I'm going to want you on. And you're like, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Sure, I'll totally and, do it. And I, yeah, and I believe that. I love a good microphone camera. <laughs> I'm always ready for my close-up, Mr. DeVille. And I knew that it needed to it needed to be you and I love that you're like I said moving to Hawaii because now is the time for me to be able to capture this yeah. story. And I knew parts of it, but I mean, no one goes into their full story so I feel extremely honored to be able to have heard and you allow the rest of us to be able to share yeah. 
not your full story, I guess. Everyone has secrets and needs to keep them, Always. you know. But enough to be able to be vulnerable enough to share with yeah. us. And this is going to help people. I appreciate it. I love it's you, It's been Phil. my pleasure, yeah, for sure. I appreciate this I love so you much. and your family and and all my clientele. Jessica, just... Right? They're not... Without Jess, we wouldn't know each other. That is correct. Her uh, wedding, her yeah. kids. Yeah. That's her story. She's got story. She actually said to me, she's like, this is going to be my favorite story on your podcast. I know it. And yeah. I'm like, sorry, Drew. Yeah. <laughs> my bad. No, <laughs> yeah. but it, it is. That is the one thing I've loved about being in this industry is that my clients are family. I've known them for, you know... A decade to two decades. Yeah. Um, you did Jessica's mom, and she's passed on now. I oh, mean, yeah. you are a staple. Jessica is a fourth-generation client, starting with Carol. Now, I mean, each one keeps having another baby. Yeah. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, then their babies have a baby. And I'm yeah. like, oh, goodness. You need to cut Isabel's here so you can keep going. Oh, her, yeah. D- her baby's here. Excuse me. Yeah. But, yeah, like, you're... It's funny how your hairdressers can be family because you share so much in that chair. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, this is happening in this, and no wonder you're so close. I mean, that's why. Yeah. I mean, we don't give sometimes hair hairdressers like, and I know you're more than that, but to me, you're my hairdresser, and to other people, you're the educator. And so yeah. you've got like these different groups that you've touched because of different reasons, and I'm just one of just that, you know. Yeah. So I appreciate it so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Anytime. Sure. Yeah, love you. Love you too. I mean, come on. You see what I'm saying? Are you in love with Phil like I am? I mean, wasn't that so amazing to be able to listen to his story? I just knew that I needed to have him on the Candid Kiwi and for him to be able to have a chance to share with us about his life. And I'm really, really glad that he did. Phil does not shy away from being honest. He doesn't shy away from trying to make connections with you and that's what this is all about i hope that you learned something from phil i hope that i know that i gained some understanding and appreciation and i know that i'm gonna continue to work on myself to try and make sure that i work hard and don't listen to the naysayers and which oftentimes is myself, (laughs) and work hard for what it is that I want. And I hope that you do too. Feel free to tell me what you loved about Phil's story, what you love about Phil, and I will see you next time on episode 35, which will be me. So until next time, kakiti ano aue koutou.